Wonderful. Please take your seats. Good to see you here at the teaching service this evening. We're finishing a series. Uh, we're going to be looking at the Feasts of Israel. Um, but before we do that, just to say a few things. Next Sunday um, is, of course, Easter Sunday, and the 5 o'clock teaching service is going to be a special teaching emphasis that day on the doctrine and truth of the resurrection. Uh, everybody knows that Jesus raised, is raised from the dead, and, uh, but do you know how important it is that Jesus is raised from the dead and what that means for us that Jesus is raised from the dead? Paul said in Corinthians that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then our faith is futile and that we are to be pitied more than any other people on earth. So the doctrine of the resurrection is at the heart of the Christian faith. It's the heart. Because if Jesus died on the cross and wasn't raised from the dead, we would still be in our sins. So the importance of the resurrection, what it means, that's what we will be looking at from a teaching perspective and go quite a bit into detail um, on uh, next Sunday. Then after that, we will be starting a new series, and it's there on page four of the New Revival Times that's out today. And we've been doing some themes over the last few series. We've done well, we'll be finishing today on the end times, uh, not on the end times, on Israel. And then we did a series on the end times. And then we also did a series on what happens when you die. And we also did a series, uh, quite a long series, on the Sermon on the Mount. And so what we're going to be doing now is going to be changing tack a little bit. We are going to be doing a series on a letter in the New Testament. And we're going to spend some time in the letter of James. Many of you know that I've written a book on the letter to, collect, to Galatians called No More Law. And the next book that um, I will be writing for Paternoster will be on the book of James. And so we're going to spend some time after Easter going through the book of James. It's important to do this because, you know, it's great to, to teach thematically. I've been teaching thematically about the Bible and Israel and the end times, and that's good to do. But, you know, God didn't give us a book, that were, a Bible that was thematic, did he? He gave us different genres. He gave us poetry. He gave us history. He gave us biography. Um, he gave us prophecy. And he also, in the New Testament, gave us scripture in the form of letters from a person to a group of people with a specific situation. So if you really want to understand God's word, you can't just look at it thematically you have to look at it in the form it was given. So it's important that all Christians regularly study the Word of God in its context, a letter. So we're going to spend uh, time looking at, uh, at, at James and faith um, in action. Tonight at the revival service, as well as hearing the testimonies of people that are being saved on the street and brought into the service, as well as releasing the ministry team and words of knowledge and prophecy to meet people where their needs are by the gifts of the Spirit. I've also got a very, what I believe, significant word on the name of God. And when God came to Moses, he was only known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses said, what's your name? And I'm going to explain what that name is when he said, I am, that is who I am. And Jesus said in the New Testament that before Abraham was, I am. 
And we're going to look at how that name signifies something that God doesn't just want us to know about him by studying the Bible. One of the problems with Western Christianity today is we know all about God from the Bible in our heads, but we haven't experienced that God in our life like we should. You know, you can go to some areas of the world where they don't have our books, they don't have our tapes, they don't have our conferences, they don't have our learning, they don't have the knowledge of God in their head like we do. But with the little knowledge they have, they have a great experience of God in their daily persecutions. And they know God better than we do in their experience. And the, 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 the divine name, Yahweh, I will be who I will be, and I'll explain, it's a little bit deeper than that, is all about God saying, you want to know who I am? You're going to see who I am by experiencing me. And it's a radically different way of approaching your Christian life. Because so often, head knowledge, but God wants us to experience the knowledge of him in our daily walk with him. So that's what's happening this evening. So we come to the final uh, of our sessions on Israel and the Bible. And... Uh, Welcome to all of those of you that join us on the internet. Quite a significant number of people join us at the five o'clock service from around the world on the internet. And we really appreciate you joining with us. You're part of us here, even though you're far away. And others that are unable to make it here at five o'clock, uh, I know that during the course of the next week, they will be going online. All our sermons are put online and they'll be watching this. So welcome, welcome to you whenever you're watching this. Don't forget, with all of the series we do at the five o'clock service, you just go onto the media page at the, on the KT website, media page, and then scroll down to where it says series. Press on series, find the series you want, whether it's a five o'clock series that I've done or a series Colin's done on the morning. You press the series you want, and then they all come up together. That way you don't have to like trawl through the different months to try and find what happened. So today we're going to have just an introduction on the feasts of Israel. And I think this is important because we tend to have a knowledge of some of the feasts of Israel. We hear words like the Passover and as we come to Easter, the Passover of, of the Jewish festival is very important. We hear the festival of Pentecost. Perhaps you've heard the Festival of Tabernacles or the Day of Atonement or the, or, the, or, or, or the Day of Trumpets. But I find that sometimes, unless you're very interested in this subject, and you probably therefore know more than me, but sometimes the average Christian doesn't really know how all this fits together. And so today I want to give you a general introduction to the Feasts of Israel so that you can do a little bit more study uh, at, at your desire. So if we could have the first slide. The Feasts of Israel, key uh, chapter and verse here is Deuteronomy 16.16. 16, because here we read, and this is an introduction to the feasts that we're going to briefly look at today. It says, three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose. At the Feast of, unble of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles. No man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. Deuteronomy 16, 16. So this is talking about the fact that, there are, that, that God is saying there are three 
major feasts. And these feasts took place in Jerusalem. And you were required as a male Jew to come down, even if you didn't live in Jerusalem, if you lived somewhere up in northern Galilee, you were required by the word of God to travel to Jerusalem three times a year for these festivals. Uh, and we, we will see later on that there are the spring festivals and the autumn festivals. Now, you, it mentions the three festivals that we are to visit that you're to visit in Deuteronomy 16, 16. The first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Do you see that there in the verse? Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as we'll see, is also Passover. Okay, so the Feast of Unleavened Bread is also Passover. So it's the Passover time that you're to go to. And then you're to, you're to return after the Passover, as we'll see, 50, uh, 50 days later, to the Feast of Weeks, or what we call Pentecost. And then in the autumn, you return once more for the Feast of Tabernacles. It includes, as we'll see, the Day of Atonement um, and, uh, uh, and, and the Feast of Trumpets. Why is this important? This was because with all the different tribes being in Israel, that if we didn't have feasts or these three feasts, when would Israel ever gather together? If we didn't have these feasts, they'd just live in their tribes, wouldn't they? That there'd be no reason, for genera no reason for generations of Jewish men who lived further in the north to ever think about coming into Jerusalem. How would that nation ever have its identity together? But the fact that all males were commanded, whether all males did, but all males were commanded to gather together in Jerusalem three times a year, can you imagine how that would strengthen their, their identity as a nation? Twelve tribes, but one nation. How do you take those twelve tribes and make them understand that they're not just a tribe, they're part of something bigger? This is important because what we're doing on Tuesday evening is exactly a New Testament version of this gathering with all the different services that we have, with the 50 satellite churches across this city, with the different cell groups, with the youth, young adults ministry, with all these types of things. When are we, we could just go on, couldn't we, doing work for the Lord, going to the service we want to, the cell we want to, the satellite we want to, and not realize that we're more than just a cell, a service, or a satellite church, that we are London City Church, Kensington Temple, London City Church. So the importance of convocations, it's called, or gathering together, is essential for identity and purpose. And so Tuesday night is more than just a meeting in a different building. Tuesday night is essential. In fact, if I can share with you at the teaching service, we don't normally share this deeply about vision at other services, but our gatherings, our Grace for the City gatherings, are actually one of the most important, significant, and strategic meetings for us to move into our destiny in the future. I mean, I don't say that at normal services because you're dealing with people where they are, but it's the case. Because if we can't gather together increasingly with all of our numbers as one, how will we ever break through in the Spirit over this London as one church amongst many? How will we ever know who we are and stand up together? How will we do that? Not just standing up together with ourselves, but then eventually with other streams. 
So can you imagine, in fact, part of the problem in the history of Israel, when you read the, king, the book of Kings, etc., often you find that in, in northern Israel, they didn't like their men to go down to Jerusalem. Because they felt, hey, I, I don't want my tribe, I don't want my, the people in the northern kingdom. Remember when, when Israel was split into the southern and northern kingdom after Solomon? Do you remember that? And from that moment, there was two kingdoms. But there were still three feasts in one city. And in the northern kingdom of Israel, they were reluctant to let the men go down to Jerusalem. Because what, what if they went to Jerusalem and and, and, and began to, to identify more with the southern kingdom than the northern kingdom. And often this is why you find in the northern kingdom they set up altars or their own festivals or they worshipped other gods because they were saying, don't let them, I don't want all my men to go down to Jerusalem. We might not ever get them back. What if they go down to Jerusalem at these festivals, get so strong that they end up joining with the southern kingdom and defeating us? So either in the northern kingdom, they recognize the power of this gathering. So three times a, a, a year. Let's move to the next um, uh, phrase, please. We talk about feasts, but what is a festival or a feast? Well, we, we have behind me the Hebrew word for festival is shagag, shagag. Now, in the English word, the festival when we talk about a festival, like a, you know, if you come from a Church of England background, I, I was brought up in a tiny village in Yorkshire in my early years, and one of the big events of the year was Harvest Festival, where all the farmers would bring the, the first fruits of the harvest. We'd have a wonderful evening filling the village church, and then we'd have pie and peas afterwards in the village hall. Fond memories. It was a very powerful festival, and a festival in the English language, is an opposite of a fast. It's where you feast. It's a time of rejoicing. And it's the same in the Hebrew word of shagag. In fact, the Hebrew word shagag that means festival or feast means to dance, to move in a circle, to be giddy with joy. The word comes from the idea of leaping and dancing in sacred dance. And so other definitions refer to an appointed festival, a day, a special time, a special assembly. So feast days were occasions when Israel would keep divine appointments with God. God was the host at these feasts, and his people were invited to attend. So it's the idea, we see that in the New Testament, when Jesus speaks about the parables of somebody throwing a party, and some people don't attend. Oh, I've got, just got married. Oh, I've got a new cow or whatever. And, and the idea is that these festivals that we're talking about are put on by God. They're God's festivals for his people to celebrate the goodness of God. Next slide, please. Why should Christians study the feasts? Well, we should study these feasts because they're a shadow of things to come. Hebrews 10 verse 1 tells us. That the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come. It's a picture, a preparation of things to come. The tabernacle of Moses is a picture of the tabernacle in heaven. The sacrificial offerings of the Old Testament all point to the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. They, they, they are prophetic types that point towards Christ and his ministry. We'll see this in 
the day of Pentecost, the, uh, or the Feast of Weeks, points to the outpouring of the Spirit. Passover, as we'll see, points to Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus is the Passover lamb. Uh, all of these have relevance and speak and prepare the nation of Israel for the coming of Christ, of coming of Christ and his ministry. And these feasts are actually fulfilled in Christ and the church. All these feasts find their fulfillment in Christ. And since the cross, these historical feasts have become spiritual realities rather than just feasts. Pentecost is something we experience. We have the Holy Spirit in our lives. You've experienced Pentecost. When we look at this feast, wonderful feast, but you've experienced the real thing. Passover, wonderful feast, celebrating the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. But Passover is all about blood sacrifice. And you have experienced the spiritual Passover. You have had the blood of the Lamb applied to your life. And you are saved from your, from your sins. Behind me, we have the calendar of the feasts of Israel. And if you could get myself and the, and, and the thing in behind me on the TV shot, that would be great. Because I want to point out some things. If you look here with me, you can see again that they are, there are three sets of feasts. Sometimes one feast actually um, is, is a num has a number of feasts within it. So let's have a look here. Firstly, we have what we call the spring feasts. Can you see that? The spring feasts. This is the first time that the men of Israel would need to come down or up to Jerusalem. And the spring feasts, well, they take place in our calendar around March, April time, in the Jewish calendar month of Nisan. And these spring feasts that are all joined together takes place, all of these, Passover, Unleavened Bread and first fruits, all take place within a week or so together. Because I tell you what, if you're going to come up to Jerusalem for a festival, you don't want to hang around for three months, do you? So when you come up, the idea is come up for a, for a, a short while and we'll, we'll do what we need to do and you can go home. So we have Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and First Fruits. And then, and then you go home and then we come 50 days later. It's time again to come to Jerusalem. And this is around May or June in our calendar and the, and the month of Jewish month of Sivan. And that's where we come for Pentecost. That's the second time, 50 days later. And then after that, there's quite a break over the summer period until we come to the autumn festivals or the autumn feasts. Now, you can see that I've obviously got this from an American site because it talks about the fall feasts. So the fall feasts, but, you know, uh, in English, we call that the autumn feasts, the autumn feasts. And these feasts... Are, are, are generally known as the Feast of Tabernacles, which includes the Feast of Trumpets and the Atonement. Now, just one thing to say about this whole thing again is that when does the Jewish New Year start? Well, it's important when you're studying the feasts to realize that there are two calendars in the Jewish calendar. There is the religious calendar and there is the civil calendar, okay? It's a bit like if you come from a Catholic background or you're aware of the Church of England, there's a church calendar, isn't there? As you go up to Christmas, what is the church calendar time? It is Advent. 
Then there's Epiphany, isn't there? And Easter and, and Lent. These are church religious calendars, aren't they? Well, here it's a similar. And so the religious year for the Jews begins at Passover in the spring. That's when the religious year begins. It's Passover. And of course, that makes sense because the nation was born out of Passover, wasn't it? When God called them out of Israel and they left Israel, it was like day one of, the, sorry, when God called Israel out of Egypt and they crossed over the uh, Red Sea, it was like day one of the nation, wasn't it? The birth of a nation. So it's appropriate that Passover should be the beginning of the Jewish religious calendar. But if we go over now to the autumn or fall feasts, we find that when we talk about the Jewish New Year today, the Jewish New Year that we normally talk about is the civil calendar. And the first day of the civil Jewish New Year here around September is the Feast of Trumpets or the Day of Trumpets. So it's in autumn when you hear Jewish people saying Happy New Year to you. They're talking about the civil calendar. So just to, just to give you a little background um, of those. So what we're going to do now is we're going to spend some time looking at the spring feasts of Passover, unleavened bread, and the first fruits. Now, I just want to say something before we get into this. What we know as Passover is often the umbrella term that is used by the Jews is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, okay? So the Feast of Unleavened Bread also includes, also includes um, Passover and first fruits. So sometimes you'll hear people talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and that includes Passover. That includes the day of first fruits that we're going to have a look at. But we are going to also use the general term that Christians use of the word Passover. So if we could have um, the, next, the next slide, please. The Feast of Passover. Now, the Feast of Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread had three parts to it. It had the unleavened bread part of, to it. It has the actual feast and meal of Passover to it that Jesus had with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed. And then it has the final day of the feast, which is on a Sunday, the day when Jesus was raised from the dead. And that is called the feast day of the sheaf of first fruits. So this first coming down to Jerusalem, the spring feasts, has three aspects of it. And remember, Passover is the beginning of months in the religious calendar. Passover was the beginning of months for Israel. The old months were forgotten. This was a new calendar and a new start. This feast was the foundation of Israel's experience with God. It also showed that God had more for them in the months to come. It's the beginning, not the end, and will be seen in subsequent feasts to, be, to, to come. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, all of this, of course, is based on the accounts of Exodus, on how God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them out as a nation for the first time. And so we know that in that story, before the day of Passover, when they were take, to take that lamb, 
and put the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of their household. Before that, they were instructed, weren't they, to do something. They were instructed to get rid of all the leaven that was in their households. And you say, if you don't know what leaven is, leaven is an old English word for yeast. So you know if you put yeast in bread, it causes it to rise. As you cook the bread, the yeast spreads through that bread and causes it to rise. If you cook bread without yeast, it's going to come out flat. And so that's why unleavened bread is always flat. There's no yeast to cause it to rise. And so right before the beginning of the week of Passover, both in this festival and also originally when God was dealing with Israel, the household, and this, this is really the head of the household has responsibility for this, they would go right through the house and they would get rid of every bit of leaven or yeast that they could find so that there would be no yeast in the house at all. And uh, the, the seven days of this feast of unleavened, now what, why is this unleavened cleansing important? Because in, in, in those days, if leaven or yeast would be found in your house during this period of unleavened bread, including Passover time, if you, they found yeast in your house, you'd be cut off from your people. So it's very significant, isn't it? Again, I'm not going too much in detail in these feasts. It's just introduction. But you see, leaven in the Bible or yeast in the Bible is often used for about the contaminating properties of sin. Jesus would, in the gospel, speak about the leaven or the yeast of the Pharisees. Do you remember that when he warned his disciples? He said, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. What? Legalism and Pharisaic teaching spreads. So if you've got someone who's uh, got a, a, a condemnation attitude, who condemns people, who's a legalist, who's an outward religious person and not an inward heart person for God, then that, does it, that doesn't just stay there. But what that can do is it can spread throughout the whole congregation. Paul warned the Corinthians to get rid of the yeast of sin, of uncleanliness in their congregation. Because what was happening was, was that sexual sin and gluttony wasn't just a few people in the Corinthian church, but it had a contaminating, spreading effect. That's what yeast does. Yeast spreads right throughout the bread and causes the whole bread to rise. In fact, if you're interested, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, I'm going to read it to you. And uh, we see that Paul is speaking about the Passover, which we celebrate as communion today. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 to 8, Paul says to Corinthians, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are really unleavened. For Christ is our Passover lamb and has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, or the old yeast, the leaven of malice, evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Isn't that interesting? So Paul is thinking about this feast, and he's speaking to the Corinthians that were mainly Gentile, and saying, before you take communion together, 
We want you to in, want you to cleanse yourself of impurities, the old leaven of the old life, the sin that would spread through your life unchecked. Cleanse yourself of the leaven. And here he speaks about malice and evil, because if you don't, that will spread through the body like a cancer. You have to get rid of it and then be like unleavened bread where there's no way that this can spread through you. And so there is a picture of leaven being applied in a New Testament con uh, um, context. And then, of course, during that week, we have the eating of the lamb, the unleavened bread, and the bitter herbs. And you'll find this in Exodus 12, 8. I can't go into detail in all these passages. That's not what today's about. It's just a general introduction for you. And so, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, it was the Passover. Remember, in Jewish days, when does the day start in, in Jewish thinking? What time of day? Evening, nightfall. So, that's why in Genesis it says... Um, the night and the day, the first day. E sorry, evening and daytime, the first day. Evening is the beginning of the day for the Jewish people. Evening. So when it gets dark, oh, it's getting dark outside, it means that tomorrow's just about to start. And so when Jesus held his Pass Passover meal on that evening, it was the beginning of Passover. Although he would die the next day during Passover, the Passover meal had already started. And when he met with his disciples, that's exactly what he was doing. He was celebrating this feast. And they would have lamb, and it was roasted and eaten. It's blood already of being applied to the household, reminding Israel that they were delivered by the lamb. Isn't it interesting that John, when he saw Jesus come, said, Behold, the lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. Elsewhere, we find that Jesus is called the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the, of, of the world. And so when we understand Passover and that the blood of the lamb on that first Passover was put on the doorpost. And it's called Passover because when God sent the angel of judgment, wherever he saw the blood of the lamb on a household, what did the angel do? Passed over. And, it was, and the interesting thing was, anybody that sheltered under the blood of the Lamb was Passovered for judgment. And so the Lamb was a picture. Jesus said we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He was the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It's a picture of separation and deliverance from Egypt, the house of bondage. The bitter herbs that they would have had that night when he was betrayed reminded Israel of the bitterness of their experience in Egypt. And it also reminds us of the bitterness of the cup that Jesus had to drink. Do you remember that in Garden Gethsemane? He said, do I have to take this cup to drink? Father, is there any other way? Well, what is he thinking of? He's thinking of the, the cup of the bitter herbs that was taken on that night that he was betrayed. Only, I mean, it must have been strange for Jesus to taste the bitterness and realize that that was a picture of what he was just about to fulfill and experience. And then, of course, the unleavened bread, which was called in Deuteronomy 16.3, the bread of affliction. Jesus was to be afflicted to become the bread of life. 
Now, that's not where the Feast of Unleavened Bread or Passover finishes because there was one more special day. And that was three days and three nights after Jesus uh, died, on the, died on the cross. You know, although we celebrate Good Friday, Jesus did not die on a Good Friday. Do you know that? Does anybody know what day Jesus died on? No? Well, what's three days and three nights back from Sunday? Thursday. He died on Thursday. Um, the reason people think Good Friday is this. is because when you study the Gospels, won't go too in-depth, but I will give you an in-depth understanding of this next Sunday. We talk about resurrection. I'll go in-depth on this and show you this. I'll put some slides up and show you it. That, that um, there were two Sabbaths during this period, not just one Sabbath. And so when people are trying to calculate when Jesus died and rose again, they get the Sabbaths mixed up. And so Jesus really was in the tomb for three days and three nights. If he died on Good Friday, well, he was there sort of Friday late afternoon, one day Saturday, up early on Sunday. It's not three days and three nights, is it? So thank God for Good Friday, but that wasn't the day that he died in the week. And I'll, I will show you that in depth next Sunday. I haven't got time there. But on Sunday... On the Sunday that Jesus rose again, that's the last part, the ending of this festival of unleavened bread, Passover, and now we have the feast day of the sheaf of first fruits. What do we mean when we talk about sheaf? Well, we're talking about, you know, in the old days when they go out to a field and they'd harvest and they'd take a whole bunch of barley or wheat and they'd tie a big um, rope around it. That's a sheaf, yes? And so... The final part would take place on the Sunday, the final day of the feast. And you can find this in Leviticus 23, verse 19. But Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, says that Christ is our firstfruits. That's 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 following, just in case you want notes. Christ is the firstfruits. What's Paul talking about? He's talking about the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the end of Passover, this particular um, Sunday. And what happened here was, well, when Israel uh, entered the Promised Land, they began to keep this feast. They didn't in the wilderness because they weren't having any harvest. And this is the barley harvest that takes place during the spring. And what they would do is that the barley was soon to be reaped. And on this Sunday, what would ha come out, they would take the, the first fruits of the barley and they would go out and they would reap one sheaf. No more. The harvest nearly ripe, but they'd reap one sheaf. And this one sheaf was called the first fruits. They would take it back to the priest and the priest would wave it in the presence of the Lord in the temple. And this was to be done on the morning after that second Sabbath, so on Sunday morning. And nobody could eat the bread or grain of the new harvest until this one sheaf had been presented to the Lord and accepted for Israel. Jesus is our first fruits. What does this mean? Well, just as this one sheaf was taken on that Sunday and then brought to the priest, and that sheaf represented all the other harvests to come. All that harvest was represented in this one sheaf of wheat. And it would be presented before the Lord and accepted before the Lord. And if that sheaf of wheat was accepted, then the whole harvest was accepted and blessed. 
Well, this is exactly the picture of the resurrection. Because on the day of resurrection, on that Sunday, only Jesus was raised from the dead, wasn't he? He was the sheaf. And he was brought before the presence of the Father. As they were taking that sheaf of barley to the priests, Jesus had been raised from the dead on the same day. He is the first fruits of resurrection. And because we know that he, Jesus, our first fruits, it's there, as I said, in, um, in, 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 that, in that passage, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Because he was accepted, we know that the full harvest, when Jesus comes back, all believers, past and present, and those that are alive, will be raised from the dead and caught up with him. And you can go a lot deeper in this to see the parallels and how these feasts speak about Jesus. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Well, let, let's move on. This is just in introductory. And then the next feast is what we call Pentecost, uh, but is also known as the Feast of Weeks, or the Jewish call it Shavuot, and is the giving of the Torah. Uh, the Jewish people don't call it Pentecost. The word Pentecost is a Greek word meaning 50, and it's found in the New Testament. And so there is a break now. We've had the spring feasts, and now there's a break for 50 days until people would return for Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. In fact, there are different names for this feast. I'll just go through them so that you don't get confused if anybody uses a different word. It's called the Feast of Harvest in Exodus 23, 16. It's called the Feast of Weeks in Exodus 34, 22. It's called the Day of First Fruits in Number 28, 26. It's called the First Fruits of the Wheat Harvest, Exodus 34, verse 22. It's called the Feast of Pentecost in the New Testament. Pentecost meaning the Greek word for 50th. And so Passover took place on the 14th day of the first month of the religious year when Israel left Egypt. And then uh, the day that Moses went up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments was exactly 50 days later. So there was 50 days later from the, from the exodus of Egypt into the day of Pentecost. Again, this is interesting because the first Pentecost gave us the law. But the New Testament Pentecost gave us the Holy Spirit. And this is really important when we understand passages like Galatians and um, um, passages like 2 Corinthians 3. Because we compare the two, pa two Passovers, sorry, two Pentecosts, the first and the New Testament one in Acts. Because when Moses brought the law, 3,000 people on that day died. But when the Pentecost of Acts took place, 3,000 people got saved. When that first Pentecost took place, the law was given that brought people in bondage because they couldn't live it. And they had to live according to that law. They had to pattern their lives according to that law. But when the Pentecost in Acts took place, the Spirit came to replace the law. And that's why Galatians says that those that walk by the Spirit are not under the law. So in our lives, we have a choice. Do you want to be under the first Pentecost or the second Pentecost? Because you can't be under both. 
You're either living by law, outward rules and regulations, or you're going to live by relationship with the Spirit based on the new commandment that Christ gave us to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to do unto others as they would do unto us. That's the new way, and that's empowered by the Spirit. And so it's interesting to see that. 2 Corinthians 3 um, gives us a wonderful parallel uh, if you want to read that at times. In fact, Pente- the, 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 the comparison of the two Pentecosts is found not only in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, but it's also found at the end of Galatians 4, where Paul speaks about the covenant that came on Mount Sinai and the covenant that came from Mount Zion. And you will also see it in Hebrews chapter 12, where it speaks about the frightening. Moses was terrified on the day that the law was given. But then it speaks about the grace of God that was given on, the Mount, on, on, on Mount Zion. So they are compared there in the New Testament. Uh, I'm not going to go into any more detail uh, um, into that, except that it was the harvest of, of wheat and that it speaks about a harvest period, the beginning of that harvest. And uh, uh, Pentecost is often seen as the... Um, the beginnings of the great harvest that's going to take place. And it's all about souls. Moving on. Now we come to the autumn festivals. If we could just have a look at that diary again behind us. So there, we've looked at the spring feasts. We've looked at Pentecost. And now coming over to September, October, September, October time here, we have what we call the Feast of Tabernacles. And sometimes the Feast of Tabernacles can include everything here. But just like we have over on the spring feasts, where we have three elements, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, so there are three elements in the autumn or fall festivals. Tabernacles, which can mean a specific part of this, or tabernacles can include the Day of, Ota- of Atonement and also the trumpets. And so when we come to the feast day of the uh, the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, when we come now to the next slide, sorry, I'm moving fast, to the next slide, which is the Feast of Trumpets. This is the beginning of the autumn feasts. So the men in Israel will be expected to go to Jerusalem and to, uh, and to start. And the first day would be uh, the Feast of Trumpets. There you have it, Happy Ross Hashanah. And uh, what was this? The Feast of, tr- um, of Trumpets is the first day of the Jewish civil year. And so when Jewish people are celebrating Happy New Year, this is what they're celebrating, the Feast of the Trumpets. And these trumpets are a great announcement. It was to announce the beginning of a new month and a new year in the civil calendar And it was also to prepare people for the coming Day of Atonement. Now, when we move to the, to the, to the, uh, I'm getting all my slides. Can I have the next slide? I'm getting a little bit. Ah, okay, thank you. We move now to the next important festival, the Feast Day of Atonement. Now this, I'm talking about how festivals are, are, are time to celebrate But this feast was the most solemn of all feast days. The Day of Atonement was a day of national 
and ritual cleansing. Everything was atoned for. In Leviticus 16, and, and a lot of this is in Leviticus 16. During this day, atonement or forgiveness had to come to Aaron and his household. The priests had to be atoned for, for their sins. Also, the nation had to have atonement for their sins. Even the sanctuary had to be sanctified and atoned for. And this is where we hear about the high priest who alone can make atonement for the nation and only once he would enter, once in a year, and this is on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the Holy of Holies. And uh, if his atonement was accepted, and then atonement would come to the nation. It's interesting that in the priestly garments, uh, they wear bells on the, the, the bottom of the garments. So you would be able to hear the high priest moving with the bells. And the idea was, because only the high priest could only once, on the Day of Atonement, go into the Holy of Holies, that all the other priests would be listening outside. And as long as they could hear those bells ringing, they knew everything was all right. But if the atonement, if God did not accept the sacrifice and the high priest's atonement, they had outside the Holy of Holies a special long stick with a hook on. And so if the bell stopped ringing and there was no answer, they would have to put in that big hook and pull out the dead body of the high priest whose atonement had not been accepted. I don't know if that ever happened or not, by the way. Um, also on this day, and you, you can see this in the picture behind me, was where we hear about the scapegoats. After the atonement was completed, we have two goats. If we could have it on, on a big picture, that would be great. There they are. We have the priest. This is after the atonement had been accepted. We have two goats, and the hands of the high priest were laid upon one of it, transferring the sins of Israel to it, and then it was released into the wilderness. It was the scapegoat. And in the English language, we still use that word, don't we? When we're looking for someone to carry the blame. You know, when, when somebody does wrong in, in the Houses of Parliament, and the MPs are running around trying to find a scapegoat. In other words, who are we going to put all the blame on? Who's going to carry the blame for everything that's gone wrong? And sometimes they'll say, well, that person can be a scapegoat and we'll sacrifice them to the media. In Hebrews, we see a lot about the Day of Atonement and, and how this was fulfilled in the ministry of Christ. That's why it was so important on the day that Christ died, something significant happened. The veil that prevented entry, except for the high priest once a year, the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, when Jesus was died, that huge, big, thick veil was cut in two, speaking about the fact that there was now access for men into the Holy of Holies through Christ Jesus. And when you read about Jesus going into heaven in, uh, in, um, in uh, 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 the book of Hebrews, this festival of the Day of Atonement, it, it is an earthly copy of what actually took place, that Jesus took his blood into the Holy of Holies of his Father's presence, and it was accepted. He's both our high priest, and he is also our sacrifice. And then finally, in this brief introduction, we come lastly to the Feast of Tabernacles. And not only can the Feast of Tabernacles talk about the whole of the autumn feasts, but it also can speak 
about the final part of this feast in the seventh month, the Feast of Tabernacles, and that's found in Leviticus 23, 33. This also is celebrating a harvest, not the harvest of wheat or the harvest of, of grain that's taken place. But this was the time of the fruit harvests, the time of the harvest of oil and the time of the harvest of wine was, was at this time. And um, during this week, from the 25th, sorry, that's mixed up. During this, during this week, in this, this particular month, people were to leave their houses and dwell in booths. The Feast of Tabernacles literally means uh, tents. And so sometimes this feast is called the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths. The Hebrew word for booth is sukkoth, S-U-C-C-O-T-H. And that's a word that's often used. And so this, this is a time of celebration of the final harvest of the year, the oil and the wine. And also they would go out, and there you see a picture of a street in Jerusalem, and you can see that we have tents here on the outside. And in certain, I know people in the congregation who live in, in predominantly Jewish areas of London where there's quite a few Orthodox Jewish people, and they know that, and their neighbors will set up tents in their gardens. And they will literally live in them during this period. And it's a time of remembering their time in the wilderness when their forefathers were in tents. It's a time of identifying um, with, with them. But it is also a, an identification of the, of the final harvest. There are special sacrifices that were taking place at this. And when all the harvest was brought in, this was the time of celebration. The Feast of Tabernacles, as you study it in, late, in greater depth, is often a picture of the end times, the final gathering in of the final harvest. We've had the early harvest. This is the final harvest of the year and a great celebration. And so it's often used in teaching and preaching as a prophetic picture of the end times when the final harvest comes in, when the final revival amongst the Jewish nation will take place and all Israel will be saved. Before I end, I want to mention two things that we find in the Gospel of John um, that weren't in the Old Testament version of the Feast of Tabernacles during that week, but were joined onto it. They were like uh, additions to the Feast of Tabernacles, and we notice those in the New Testament in, in the letter of John. And you look, if you want to see the Feast of Tabernacles in the Gospel of John, then you should read chapters 7 to 9. So when you read John chapter 7 through to John chapter 9, the background is this is the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. They're out in, in their tents. And we see two things taking place that were added in the New Testament era. On the first day of Tabernacles, while the morning sacrifice was being prepared, the priest with a great procession and music would go down to the pool of Siloam and draw water in a gold picture, a gold jug. And then he would take that jug back and later pour out that water on the altar. And this was done every morning for each of the seven days. And it was on the last day, during the last time, when they'd scooped the water up of, the, of Siloam and they were processing back 
to pour it on the altar. And it says, on the last day of the feast, Jesus, as this took place, said, if anyone thirst, let him come to me. That was what was going on in the Feast of Tabernacles. And then the second was also the Feast of Illumination that was added to the, to the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. We find that in, specifically in John chapter 8 and 9. The outpouring of the water was each day during the morning. But every night there would be the lighting of the lamps during the evening of the feasts. And these, these wouldn't just be like lamps in the, in the road place. Remember, they didn't have electricity. But in the temple area, they would build, I don't know how to explain, just a huge, almost like a bonfire, a great tower. Do you remember when we were celebrating the Olympics and we had all those beacons right across the country? Well, imagine just one big, huge beacon. And that beacon would be lit at night during the time of tabernacles. And uh, when, when Jewish people used to talk about it, who were there at the time, saying, because they were outside in their tents, weren't they? And they used to say that so bright was this huge beacon that was lit every night that you could even find a needle in the grass. I mean, the whole of Jerusalem was lit up every night during the Feast of Illumination uh, for the seven days. And, it, and they say that, Night was as bright as day. And it was in this context, when the beacon was lit, that Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And so I've just given a very general introduction to the feasts, um, but I think I've given enough also, just a few hints there, that there is so much, isn't there, that I've just given you a brief overview but there's so much in the feasts of Israel to study that point towards Christ. And as we come into Easter time, where we are celebrating a Christian version of Passover, although every time we take bread and wine, we're celebrating Christian version of Passover, maybe you might want to take a little bit more time, maybe get a book, maybe go on the internet and see a little bit more about the Jewish Passover and its roots, I've concentrated on the Passover of the Bible. Um, it's, it's even more fascinating to see how modern Jews celebrate these festivals because there's a lot of different things as well that they've brought into these festivals um, over the years, but I didn't want to complex things. Because as we look at these festivals, there, there becomes a great depth of understanding and illumination. I mean, just me telling you about the pouring out of the water and the big beacon. Doesn't that help you appreciate if any man thirsts and I am the light of the world? And often when you study these feasts or you read books on these or you see Christian websites on them or Jewish websites, often you have fresh revelations and deeper appreciations of what these festivals stand for, how they point to Christ and also, of course, how they were fulfilled with Christ. Well, next Sunday... I'm going, to exp I'm going to explain in depth the importance and doctrine of the resurrection. And then after Easter, as I've said, it's in the revival times, we will begin a new series and we will travel through one of my favorite books in the Bible uh, and one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible, The Letter to James. Thank you.